You ever get a tune stuck in your head? I'm thinking of, of a tune I heard, oh, many, many years ago, some children's show on television, and the lyrics went, it's about the size of where you put your eyes, and that's about the size of it. I don't know what the lesson was, but it's at least the tune and the lyrics stuck with me. And that's what I want to talk about today is where do you put your eyes? Because reality, whatever story we're hearing, is always bigger than where we put our eyes. Case in point, I was a young man, maybe a freshman in college, and I was at daily mass, and I had my head down in prayer, and I heard this commotion in the sanctuary. And I looked up, and I saw two of the altar boys slapping the bejabbers out of the third altar boy. Now, if I just had my eyes on that part of the story and on nothing else, I would have come to the wrong conclusion because I learned later one of the boys had leaned a bit too close to the candle and his surplice was on fire. So they were beating the flames out. And for the rest of the year, he was known as St. Blaise. And that's another story for another time. But here's the moral of the story. I was paying attention to only what I paid attention to and didn't see the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is very important. So too with the gospel passage we have here today from, from Matthew. It looks like our Lord is in a really bad mood. And if we only look at it as what's on this page and not what happened on the page before or what happens the page after, we're going to misunderstand. And if we look at Matthew without looking at the other Gospels today, in particular Mark, we're just going to have a narrow frame and what we see is not going to make sense because it's about the size of where you put your eyes. What happened in the page before, our Lord is up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. Moses and Elijah appear. They're trying, he's trying to get them ready for what happens on the next page where he's going to go into Jerusalem and suffer. So he wanted to have them all prayed up for the coming trials. And then we read the gospel passage here. There's a boy possessed, they say lunatic. In the original language, it is, it is moonstruck. At that time, people believed that the phases of the moon could make you crazy. So something got a hold of him. I went to your disciples to fix him. Because, you know, remember how you gave your disciples authority to cast out demons? Well, they're not doing that. And it looks like our Lord pops his cork, and that's not right. We look in a little bit further. When he says, oh, faithless and per uh, perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I endure you? Because we know he's heading to Jerusalem, he's going to say, guys, you're running out of time. You got to up your game. I'm not going to be here to hold your hand and fix it for you. You're going to have to learn to live in my truth even when you don't have eyes on me. So that was his sense of concern rather than exasperation. And then they look at, and then in the Matthew it says, well, well, why couldn't we drive them out? Well, if we think for a minute, say, hey, a lot of the stories we find in Matthew are also in Mark and Luke. Let's look at Mark and Luke. Well, what does Mark say? He records our Lord as saying, some of these are cast out 
only with prayer and fasting. In other words, you got to up your game because some spiritual battles are really intense. Now we come back to Matthew and this whole faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a tiny seed, and then uh, this whole mountain moving. I don't know about you. I haven't seen many flying mountains in my day. Never really felt the need to make a mountain fly. But if we do a little digging, we figure out that was, that was a metaphor, was a turn of phrase for the people in his time and place. To be a problem solver was to be a mountain mover. To know how to get things done was to be called a pulverizer of mountains, making mountains turn into dust. Now, if we take all that together, we begin to understand what our Lord was doing, and we get out of the tunnel vision of, I'm looking at the text for today and nothing else because I love God. It doesn't work that way. I always have to read the gospel with the other gospels and with the before and the after. So now we see it. Our Lord certainly does give his disciples, his apostles, the authority to drive out demons, to work wonders. You got to be prayed up to make it work. The disciples were not prayed up. And he says, guys, I'm running out of time. I can't hold your hand. And now, question for you, who else is running out of time? Me and you. We're all running out of time and into eternity. That means two things are not allowed to us. There are two luxuries we can't afford. We can't dither. We can't sit around with our thumb up our nose and wondering if it's someone else's job and why doesn't someone else do something about whatever it is that needs to be done. That's number one. And number two, we can't kid ourselves. We will be powerless disciples if we don't pray. If we don't build our lives around being immersed in the scriptures, if we don't build our lives about worship as job number one, we worship because it is right and just. We worship because we have a need, and we worship because we have a mission to be witnesses and to continue the work of Christ in the world. Our time is not our own. Our gifts are not our toys. We have a work to do. The disciples panicked because they didn't pray. There's a lesson here for all of us. May God's holy name be praised now and forever.